Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Jack Luke, Bike Radar's Deputy Editor, and today I'm joined by Simon Von Bromley and Ash Quinlan. And today we're going to be wrapping up the dregs of our Paris-Roubaix coverage for 2023. Now, that's not fair at all. We've got a really good discussion today, penned by none other than our very own Simon, looking back at how Paris-Roubaix bikes have changed the winning Paris-Roubaix Paris-Roubaix bikes in the past 10 years. Simon, before we get stuck in, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, obviously... Monday morning, so raring to go back at the coal face of content after a kind of week away on a, a kind of launch about a product which I can't talk about yet because it's embargoed. Ooh. But um, yeah, all good, thank you. Yeah, obviously still fizzing over Paris-Roubaix and what an excellent race that was. So yeah, happy to be here to talk about it. Ash, how about you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, just finished writing all of my Bike of the Year reviews and uh, getting all those sort of all the others written by everyone all the other contributors subbed and checked which means that i can now focus on all the things that i'm actually paid to do um and uh, really focus on get, getting back on up to speed on other things so uh, yeah when you do spe- special projects like uh, bike of the year you then um, have to then catch up don't you wonderful simon before we get stuck into the bikes give us as briefly as you possibly can a little overview of what actually happened on the day at paris roubaix this year uh, so basically, um, Matthew van der Poel won, and uh, they rode the race at an incredibly fast speed. Unbelievable! <laughs> uh, yeah, no, an early break didn't wasn't let go. Uh, normally, you know, for people who are who watch road racing, the kind of normal rhythm of a road race is that the kind of opening hour or so, you know, teams trade off attacks because they want to get people in the breakaway. 
but obviously in Paris Roubaix, because there's a history of you know breakaway riders winning or like you know joining the kind of faster groups, and then you know, say Matt Matt Heyman in 2016, for example, went in the early break, joined the Tom Boonen group as it rolled through, and then won. So everyone wanted to be in the break. And of course, if everyone wants to be in the break, it's not really a breakaway. It's just a peloton. Mm-hmm. And so they rode the first couple of hours at, I think, an average speed of 55 kilometers that per hour. That is insane. That is, I just cannot, yeah. I cannot fathom chipping along that consistently for that long with that many people that fast on that terrain. It's just insane. Yeah. And and, and then, yeah, Jumbo Visma basically sparked sparked off the kind of you know the this the decisive moment of the race with around just over 100k to go just before the uh the uh, Arenberg forest which is you know very early by Paris Roubaix standards but that that basically led to a group of all the big favorites including Vanderpool, Mark Van Aert, uh Philippe Ogana, Mads Pedersen and yeah they just just kind of like battered each other for the remaining 100 kilometers um I and then yeah, Van der Poel eventually managed to kind of break away from that group after uh, Wout van Aert had had a kind of ill-timed puncture, you know, as happens at Paris-Roubaix. And he made, kind of made the separation on the rest of the group and then soloed to victory. And am I right in saying it was the fastest ever Paris-Roubaix? That is right. Yeah, it was the fastest ever Paris-Roubaix at, I think, just a shade. I think it was 46841 kilometers per hour that's, that's average fast. That's for otherworldly isn't it yeah, yeah yeah for like six hours over cobbles now to frame the uh, the event for our listeners let's go back 10 years and tell us what happened 10 years ago simon because i know you said you remembered watching that race just about 20 minutes ago in a meeting okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put me on the spot so yeah 10 years ago a decade ago uh fabian cancellara was winning the last of his free cobbles and he uh outsprinted a young sep van mark in the uh, in the velodrome, uh, who was riding for Team Blanco, which was uh, what became of the Rabobank team mm. after Rabobank sponsors pulled out, and then they were they were riding. They're still riding with giant bikes, but they were riding in a kind of like blue, white, and black kit. I mean, Blanco just basically meant we don't have a sponsor. <laughs> um, but the team managed to continue going, and uh, but yeah, obviously, we I think anyone who's a kind of fan of uh, cycling from that era will know who Fabian Cancellara was an absolute legend of the sport he'd, he'd won the Tour of Flanders uh, a week earlier you know you know his kind of nickname is, is Spartacus and so obviously I got that in this article uh, right away and then had to go look up a, a nickname <laughs> for Vanderpoel apparently Matthew Vanderpoel's nickname is the Flying Dutchman never heard that in my life <laughs> never heard in my life but, um, but yes like Fabian Cancellara obviously yeah, like I say, a, a legend of of the sport, and um, you know, yeah, three Paris Roubaix titles. Like I think he had three Flanders as well, like a, a multiple world time title champions. So yeah, like that that at the time, the twenty thirteen race was the second fastest uh, race ever at just over forty four k an hour. So there's like you know, it's part of my conclusion. We'll come on to this a little bit, a little bit later, but. Um, you know, in a, in a decade, the kind of the, the race average speed has increased by over two and a half kilometers per hour, really, which is just a bit nuts. And that is going to be the focus of today's podcast. The big names have changed and so have the bikes. And we're going to take a blow by blow look through how bikes, but also more broadly sort of tech, tech within Paris-Roubaix has changed over the past 10 years, comparing Mathieu van der Poel's Canyon Aeroad CFR. CFR versus the, at the time, Brand spanking new Trek Demane. 
an all-out endurance bike designed specifically for racing on the cobbles. Wildly different bikes, but a lot in there that perhaps doesn't meet the eye at first glance. So Simon, we'll get stuck right in, then we'll come to you, Ash, but let's start off with the frame as the sort of overall starting point. How have how has bike design or the winning bike changed overall in the past 10 years at Paris-Roubaix? So I think, you know, as, as you kind of said there, the, the more accurate thing to say is, is that how has the winning bike changed? Because obviously the Trek de Mane still exists, still a bike that we have today. Uh, and actually the, uh, the women's Trek Sega Fredo team did ride the kind of most recent version of the Demane, but interestingly, the men's team chose to ride the uh, chose to ride the Madone uh, Trek era road bike. So I think, obviously, you know, uh, uh, you know the, the 2013 frame has rim brakes. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a really big one, and that and, and obviously because you know their teams are sponsored by Shimano, that kind of limits your maximum tire size. Now we were kind of you know in that era, we were used to seeing certain riders going for perhaps cantilever brakes or or even long drop Shimano brakes that were kind of off series. But you know the best braking performance in those days came from the kind of short arm. Dual pivot, classic dual pivot, rim classic, brake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So most so most riders ran those and then, you know, took the kind of limited tire clearance that, that, that those offered. You know, the Trek de Mane of that era was the first one, as far as I'm aware, to introduce uh, the kind of isospeed decoupler. Now, for the people who don't know, isospeed decoupler basically uh, separated the seat tube from the top tube and used a bearing pivot to allow the seat tube to flex independently. Now, looked a bit gimmicky at the time, but I think you know from all accounts and all the testing we've done since, I think people are generally convinced that it's very effective. It, I mean, I've tested a few bikes with ISO speed, and I found it genuinely to. It's very different to say something like the Diverge STR gravel bike, but nonetheless, it's it's quite different to other systems in the market. It's quite effective. Ash, have you ridden an ISO speed equipped bike before? Uh, I have once before, um, and it was a Damani actually, um, and I found it to be. Um, sort of incredibly useful when things got rough. Uh, you know, we, we're in a country where things are quite... Rough, generally rough, speaking. Rough, yeah, generally speaking. Uh, but road surfaces aren't the great, uh, you know, aren't great. We talk about it quite a lot in, in some of our reviews just to set, set some contextual, uh, you know, scenes there. But um, yeah, it, it, it I found it, it worked really well. I mean, Simon and I have also worked on um, with an Isoflow equipped Madone as well, which is... Uh, mainly designed for aero purposes, but it's kind of an evolution of, of of ISO speed in that it can offer a little bit of extra compliance as well, we're told. Um, but it's a little bit less effective now in the way that it is, in my opinion. Um, but yes, I found it to be quite uh, useful. So the Domani, a nice, squishy, comfortable endurance bike with, at the time, fairly generous tyre clearances, rim brakes. How does Machu Vanderpool's bike compare? Just on that kind of gener- ah. generous tire clearances thing, uh, what what's really funny is that our launch story about that bike. So you know, uh, officially tire clearance is capped at twenty five millimeters, but it looks like twenty eights will fit. What which a is telling. really really yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. How um, we, how we've moved on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, Vanderpool's uh, Canyon Road, on the other hand, is is not designed for cobbles at all. Whereas the Trek de Mane was specifically designed to be a kind of cobbled classics bike. The Canyon Road is just a. Uh, a full-on aero road bike, and the kind of only concession to comfort is, you know, wider tire clearances. I think it can take up to, you know, a 32 or a 30 millimeter tire officially, but mm. easily a 32, I would say, and perhaps a little bit more if you were not too concerned about mud clearance. The only kind of other major concession to comfort that it makes is it had a kind of interesting uh, seat post which clamped further down the back of the seat tube, 
And then you know that kind of lower clamping position supposedly allowed it to flex within the frame. But uh, funnily enough, Matthew van der Poel was riding a kind of prototype update of that bike, which has the seat clamp moved back up to the top tube in a more tra- traditional spot. That's right. And so I don't think he can't you know he can't be taking advantage of that kind of comfort enhancing seat post to the same extent because they're simply it's clamped that much higher up. It's not going to be allowed to flex within the frame as much. So I think, yeah, Matthew van der Poel's is. Canyon Aero CFR was just aero tubes, aero bars, aero everything, aero wheels, you know, and just slightly wider tires. You've already sort of hinted at it based on the average speed of the race, but why would one consider an aero bike to be optimal for the race compared to a squashy, comfortable endurance bike? You know, it's essentially because while, you know, the cobbles, you know, rightly get a lot of attention. Because they're cool. Because they're cool and they're really hard. And obviously that's where everything kind of can, you know, potentially go wrong for you. You have to still remember that actually like most of the race is run on roads and the average speeds are just so high that I think a lot of these riders feel that any, you know, it's a trade-off essentially. Like if they trade off a little bit of speed uh, everywhere else for a little bit of extra comfort on the cobbles, that's not a trade-off they want to make because, you know, like the kind of cumulative effects of a slightly less aero setup, you know, they presumably feel is not uh, is not bad is not bad enough to warrant this extra tech. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. It's also worth bearing in mind as well, you've got wider tyre clearances, tyres are wide, there's more volume, lower pressures as well. We're running tubeless now rather than, I presume Cancellara was running um, a... Um, tubulars. Uh, tubulars. There you go. So it's such old tech now that I forgot what it was called. <laughs> um, but, you know, you've got the wider wider tyre clearances. You don't need to necessarily have that compliance built into the frame Although I would argue that, you know, frame materials have improved in such a way that you, you get a bit more flex where you want it anyway uh, in the last 10 years. But, you know, it's tyres are and tyre volumes and the pressures that you run are the most important thing to, uh, to help with, you know, your, your tyre clearances as well as, sorry, your, your comfort as well as, you know, your, your overall riding efficiency. Um, and didn't you note, Simon, that he s- switched bikes at some point during the race and went from what was, a, I think, a... 30 seat up to 32 or 28 up to 30? So, yeah. So uh, we photographed Matthew van der Poel's bike with 28s at the start. Mm-hmm. And then at some point he must have switched because he f- 
it was reported that he finished on either 30s or 32s. Now, we've seen some people say he finished on 32s, but we saw, <clears throat> excuse me, Vittoria told us that he finished on 30s. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, you know, the actual size of the tyre is kind of dependent on the rim it's on, and he's running Dura's rims slightly wide. So, you know, we haven't been there with the Vernier calipers. Shameful. But you're, but you're right in general that with these wider tyres and therefore the kind of resulting lower air pressures that you can run, you don't need as much compliance from the frame whereas in in the past you know Cancellara was really you know he won the Tour of Flanders the previous week with 25 millimeter wide tubulars and those were tubulars so they would have measured 25 mm -hmm. millimeter wide they wouldn't yep. have been you know a 25 millimeter GP 4000 which sized up a bit big or whatever so for Paris-Roubaix Cancellara ran 27 millimeter wide uh, FMB Paris-Roubaix tub tubular tyres, which maybe come on to a little bit later. Yeah, we'll come on to tyre tech in depth. But, Spoiler alert. Mm. Yeah, but um, but but as a result of that kind of like, you know, the, the clearance capped by rim brake frames being what it was, people were, and brands were designing this compliance into the frame set. And I think nowadays, yeah, if you can run a 32 mil, that's like, that's a big, a big old squishy road tyre. Mm. So, you know, it, like, yeah, like maybe it isn't going to be quite as comfortable on the cobbles, but they're just they're, it's, they're, they're, they're just making the trade-offs they want. And when the race is so fast, you know, I think that, that those aerodynamic factors, you know, we, we talk, I go on about this all the time, but the faster you get, the more, you know, the power required to overcome that additional aerodynamic drag just escalates so quickly. Yeah. And so all of these things end up mattering so much. So is the endurance bike officially dead at Paris-Roubaix? Is the aero bike takeover here to stay? Uh, I mean, you know, ev everyone in the front group pretty much was running uh, an aero bike. So Wout van Aert ran and the Umbo team ran the Soloist, which is a kind of halfway house between the kind of, you know, full-on aero S5 and the kind of climbing bike R5. Now, interestingly, they didn't run the Cervelo Cal Caledonia, which is Cervelo's kind of, you know, slightly aero uh, endurance road bike, but it does look very similar mm. to the Cervelo Soloist. You know, I I'm slightly confused as to be honest why they didn't run the s5 it may be something to do with the kind of that proprietary all carbon handlebar mm -hmm. uh, and in the wake of kind of you know the the bianchi handlebar incident for example um in the last couple of months i i wonder if they wanted that kind of security of a standard front end setup that had like an alloy stem and you know potentially they could use alloy, alloy bars Just, you know because the, the, the risk of crashing in Paris Bay is so high that you don't want anything that is going to prevent, that's going to stop you in your tracks because the team car just can't get through. Mm -hmm. So there, obviously, there's an element of people trading a certain amount of performance for reliability. And bear in mind as well, these these are pro riders, so they, they you know they're they're built to absorb, you know, say built to they've trained to absorb this this kind of punishment, and you know they finish and this, these you know Paris Roubaix and they look the most tires, tired they look at the end of any race throughout the whole season uh, but they've only got to do that one day a year um, and you know I certainly couldn't absorb that the kind of punishment they're going through over, over for that speed and that time is quite apart from the fact that they're not fit enough but you know none of us are but you know you couldn't absorb all of that because of the amount of strength and training that they go through so um, there's what a pro needs is very different to what you know our listeners probably need from a bike that needs to take up take on cobbles so for 
Go Sorry, ahead. I was just going to say on that subject, which is really funny, is that like um, this this was back in the era where Trek was doing pro fit yes. bikes as yep. well and yep. consumer fit bikes. Mm. And I, what was really amusing to me was to read in the kind of article where, the, because of the UCI rules, they eventually had to release this pro fit. But the um, the pro fit version of the Demano, which Cancellara used, was allowed for this. This is a quote from BikeRadar.com, an excellent multidiscipline cycling website. <laughs> um, it said the profit frames allow for bar heights about 50 millimeters lower than 50. those on standard <laughs> demands, <laughs> with reach extended by about 20 millimeters across the board. And um, the, the head tube angle is also steepened by a degree too so it's it's like it's a race bike. It's, it's a much more of a race bike now i think you know demanes of that era were exceptionally tall yes on very the front much end, so but still five centimeters yeah. is quite a lot really liked your use of the word absorb there ash you said it so many times i was thinking of, sort of like a spongebob square pants <laughs> anyway anyway um one thing that's definitely dead probably the endurance bike one thing that we can firmly say has finally we, we bid bid farewell forever to and this Roubaix is the mechanical group set. We saw our uh, Sagan didn't really play a part in the race crashing out after 100 kilometers, but he was the sort of final rider uh, who sort of stuck doggedly to using a mechanical group set year in and year out. And actually, good segue, he was probably the last person to win on an endurance bike when he rode on that because he rode the Roubaix in 2018, didn't he? Uh, that's, that is a, that's a good question. He did. I, it was I, a Roubaix with rim brakes. No, he would he would have won. I'm just trying to think who won who won since. That's a good question. I don't know off the top of All my right, head. Right, you can do a bit of background research. Yeah. But anyway, if we compare the group sets from Matthew Vanderpool to uh, our Cancellara, we can see that yeah, electronic group sets took over pff, a long time ago. Simon, do you have any more insight in sort of gearing and drivetrains in general? Yeah, I mean it's funny. Yeah, you know that's that's kind of the theme. Obviously, um, Cancellara. Cancellara was racing uh, Dura Ace uh, 9000, which is a phenomenal looking group set. I know we say that all the time, but he chose for the, he went for the mechanical version. There was a Dura Ace version, mm. that would have been the second generation. DI2 version, you mean? Yes, of course I do. There was a DI2 electronic shifting version of that group set, which is the uh, second generation one, which, you know, by all accounts functioned very well. But I think there was a kind of, just a general feeling that it was still kind of young technology and that it wasn't reliable enough for, you know, the kind of the hardships afforded <laughs> by Roubaix. I, you know, I think people were just kind of afraid of, you know, wires disconnecting. And obviously, mm. you know, if a, if a DI2 wire disconnects whilst, you, you know, you, you just, that's it, shifting mm. is kaput. Um, so he ran Durace 9000 with um, a 53... 42 tooth chainring setup and interestingly he got Shimano to make him a custom 52 53 tooth chainring that had shift ramps optimized for that 42 tooth in a ring because I think the 42 tooth would have been normally paired with a, a 55 or something um, but Cancellara ran an 11 to 25 cassette out the back which was corn cob well funnily enough though that at that time that was a kind of middle that was a middle cassette because you, you had the 11 to 23, you? 11 to 25, and then 11 to 28. And 11 to 28 was the the widest cassette available at Jura Ace level. Um, and yeah, whereas in contrast, Matthew Vanderpool rode the new standard 54 40 tooth chain rings. And we presume, just looking at the pictures, he's he's been using that with an 11 to 30 tooth cassette because that is the tightest cassette available at Jura Ace level now. So that that's kind of funny. It's kind of interesting to think that now the flat, you know, the flat cassette for Durace is now 
wider ranging, wider ranging mm. than the climbing cassette from only ten years ago. You you could probably argue that, that over you know the Parry Roubaix course specifically, you, you still don't even you don't need that kind of range. I would imagine that um, you know Vanderpool didn't hit the thirty tooth no ring probably not in the 28 or the 26 underneath it he was probably stuck in all the ones above that so theoretically you could just put some spaces there or you know you could just have a instead of a 12 speed you could have a, a nine speed and just not bother because why would you that's i guess partly why we see a lot of riders go for one by on a lot of these races as well as the sort of minor aerodynamic advantage they also offer in theory greater reliability in terms of the less likely to drop a chain compared to a two by setup and yeah you're right people don't use that full range of the cassettes you might as well bang a great big old chain ring on the front and stick in the middle of that cassette. Just on the DI2 versus mechanical thing, I've heard in the past that a lot of riders preferred the mechanical as they felt that the uh, electronic group sets at the time were too easy to shift on the cobbles. Misshifts were a possibility. Yeah. When you're kind of hovering above the uh, shifters, though, I've never tackled the cobbles with such haste that I would... Uh, I would yeah, know. and I, certainly, you know, mechanical group sets do give a much more kind of tactile indication that you have shifted, whereas I imagine in the kind of like the haze of dust and spectator horns and cars and the kind of you having know, your teeth rattled everything out. <laughs> going on like knowing or not whether you have shifted you whether you know when you're just pressing a little button you only hear that little like whir of the motor if you're just riding along whereas like it's very obvious whether you have like you can literally feel the the throw of the mechanical shift lever going across and clicking yeah. so you can you get that more tactile feedback with a mechanical group set yeah of course they're cheaper too so they're better value <laughs> and that's what they care about uh, just finally on mechanical group sets as I mentioned Sagan this is his last ever Roubaix um, he did ride a mechanical group set and I think I would put money on that being the last time we ever see a mechanical group set raced at Roubaix. To be honest, possibly even at any kind of world tour level, from a world tour level team. Yeah, I would think so. You know, I think Sagan, he's the kind of rider as a kind of star of the sport who can make requests mm. like that. Uh, whereas most, you know, most other riders can't because it upsets sponsors, obviously, to not be using the kind of latest stuff. But yeah, obviously, you know, there isn't, a mechanical Jura Ace at, at at that level anymore. So I think Sagan's team, Total Energies, is for, I'm assuming they buy their Shimano components. They're not sponsored by them. They're still running 11-speed Shimano. Unrideable. Yeah. They're still <laughs> running 11-speed Shimano Jura Ace. Um, but perhaps next season they'll switch over. And, you know, unless Shimano drops a huge bombshell and decides to release a mechanical Jura Ace, yeah, I, I think that could well be... The last hurrah for Mechanical in the World Tour. Moving back onto tyres, we've pretty much covered that wider tyres have become more popular. I mean, just generally in road racing, most riders will be seen on 28 tyres for standard road races, let alone the cobbled classics. But kind of thinking around tyre width has, has changed a lot. The one thing we haven't really covered, or only very briefly, is the almost wholesale shift from tubular tech to, particularly for races like this, tubeless tyres. Now, this year was run on tube, uh, one on tubeless tires. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Ash, any further further thoughts or analysis on the tubeless takeover in road racing, specifically Roubaix? Um, I think I, I think it's just the development of you know the natural curve of development. We're starting to see um, you know it's more efficient. Uh, brands will claim it's more efficient anyway. And from from my point of view, if you're seeing pros uh, wholesale using it. Uh, because they've got choices, they do still have choices. I think 
you know, it probably is true. Is it feels better to them, and they feel that it gives you gives them more more comfort as well. Um, the, for me, the interaction with with the wheel sets that they're running is important as well. Uh, you know, rim diameters or rim widths are, are are getting ever ever wider. This has a massive impact on the size of the tire that you can run, and I think that's that's probably really important as well. Um, I've just finished testing, a, for example, a, an NV SES 4.5 wheel set. It's one of the rims that is available to the UAE uh, Team Emirates. Um, and they, you know, they, that's that's 25 mil wide internally. That it's, it's incredibly wide and straying into what we call gravel wide now. But, you know, it does have a noticeable impact on how a tyre feels and rides and the pressures you can run, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's moved along quite a lot. You had an interesting note on that, Simon, in relation to pressure and just how much thinking has changed. Obviously, tyre width impacts this as well, but it's safe to say people don't necessarily opt for the hard as you possibly can pump it sort of school of thought <laughs> no. with tyres these no, days. No, no, they don't. And and I and I think this, you know, this as the tyre grows, you can afford to run lower pressures without kind of, you know, the cobbles hitting hitting the rim. And that's essentially what you're trying to do. But you, you, you're kind of caught in that kind of, trade-off between optimizing for you know the the kind of best grip rolling resistance and comfort on the cobbles and then the kind of you know those same factors on the tarmac now this year we did see a, a couple of teams team dsm and team jumbo visma using these uh tire pressure control systems mm. one from uh atmos atmos and the other one from caps, CAPS. yeah so uh, you know basically those allowed the teams you know via various means to uh you know, deflate and reinflate the tires kind of on on demand. Now, theoretically, this should sort of negate that that trade off. Now, you know, obviously, those two teams didn't win, but we don't really, know, you know, you, could, you it's hard to kind of draw conclusions from what advantage that was. I think the DSM system, for example, uh, I, I read elsewhere on the internet that that stops riders from using sealant. So, you really? know, yeah, just some, some apparently something to do with the way it works stops riders from using sealant. That may or may not be true. I don't know. But, but, you know, obviously there may be more trade-offs with those as well. I think the, the kind of, yeah, the as, as Ash said, the kind of interesting thing, you know, tubeless tyres are kind of, you know, unanimously agreed or have tested faster generally than, than tubular tyres because there's kind of less material for, you know, for a, all else being equal, you know, a tube, you know, the same tubular tire, same tubeless tire. There's just kind of less material, lower hysteresis, lower rolling resistance. There was a couple of controversies this year with uh, a few people suffering blow-offs. Mm, there was a horrible video of uh, was a Yumbo Visma rider, I think. So, I, so for, yeah. I think Fred Fred Wright of mm. um, Team Bahrain, his You're his right. tire pops off good. the rim, and there, there may be one or two others. Now I know like. You know, Luke Rowe addressed this, and this caused a certain amount of controversy in in the cycling media about people not choosing not to run uh, inserts because there's a kind of worry that the inserts are adding a couple of watts of rolling resistance, and and therefore teams are kind of like deciding to to not do that because they don't want to slow the slow their wheels down. But then obviously, you know, when a tubeless tire gets a puncture, you know, it's not glued on the rim, so. Mm-hmm. And on the cobbles, obviously, there's a you know you could burp air. There's a risk, you know, there's a risk. Basically, the tire can come off the rim, which did happen. And then we saw riders riding on the rims, and of course, rims that are not very compliant with our <laughs> tires. Um, I think that's fair to say. Uh, and that was good, yeah. Simon. Real stating the obvious there. I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know. So from 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 my 
from what I've seen of the latest kind of inserts, uh, I think the Vittoria ones are the, are the ones that most people are using. Now, from the testing that I've seen and from what Vittoria claims, these compress inside the tyre when the tyre is under pressure and they don't add any rolling resistance. And I think there's reliable data from you know, bicyclerollingresistance.com, uh, AeroCoach have tested them, I think, and I think that has been kind of confirmed to be true. But I guess people are worried. There are other brands of inserts, of course, and maybe though, you know, anything that kind of touches the sidewall, it's a bit yeah. like an inner tube, is going to cause a little bit of rolling resistance. But I think kind of Luke Rowe was making the argument that, you know, if we're going to be everyone running tubeless tyres, perhaps there should be a kind of, you know, tubeless inserts should be mandated for safety reasons to prevent the tyre coming off the rim in the same way. Because that was always, you know, one of the things tubular riders or proponents have sort of argued is that a tubular tyre being glued on the rim is much safer, say, you know, in a cobbled race or on a mountain descent, because when you get a puncture, the tyre isn't hopefully going to roll off the rim. Now, of course, you know, tubular tyres do also roll off the rim yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've, we've all seen Yaciba Balocchi's crash in the Tour de France, you know, in the kind of Armstrong years. And of course, anyone who's familiar with cyclocross will know that tubular tyres can also roll off rims. But, you know, that layer of glue is a kind of additional layer of protection and yeah like you know I, I think maybe maybe he's not wrong in the sense that all teams should be running tubeless inserts for safety reasons you know regardless of whether it adds any rolling resistance as a morsel rider i can't say tubes are i i mourn the loss of tubulars my only sort of um regret is that we'll never see a handsome green sidewall again at paris roubaix from the uh dugast is it dugast? No, no so sorry. those were vittoria's right. yeah um you know they could actually vittoria uh didn't they buy Dugast? I, th I think yeah, Dugast I think is owned right, by Victoria. Right. So, so it's possible. I think Michelin still do their kind of, you know, nah, green cyclocross. treaded cyclocross tyres. So they they could, you know, Michelin's having a bit of a road tyre revival. Let, let, we want it. We want to we see want it. it. Pink and green sidewalls. Yeah. Nice shalloy box section. Ambrosio <laughs> rims. Ooh. Jumbo Visma had a blue tyre during the Tour de France. Nah, years ago. You, can, you can have whatever you want. Made him look like a 2008 fixie. <laughs> well, that, that, be that as it may, you can still have whatever colour you like. Going on to finishing kit now things have really changed a lot here just in terms of the tech but also i dare say a rider's ability to express themselves and their particular tastes ash we go to you here well we're seeing now you know it, we've got one piece cockpits uh pretty much all over the all over the peloton there are some exceptions where you've got you know, mad stem lengths. I think there was one that I I, I don't want to. I can't remember what the, what the length was. But we one hundred and seventy millimeters. One hundred and seventy. I was going to say one hundred and sixty, and I thought that was just ridiculous. <laughs> so I wasn't going to say it. But one hundred and seventy millimeter long. I don't know who that rider was. I can't remember. Jonas Rush. There you go. You've got better memories than I Something do. Something like that. It was, in the words of our former uh, US editor in chief Ben Delaney, "That's not a stem. That's a top tube." <laughs> <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, so you do get some sort of outliers there but for, for the most part we're seeing uh one piece um setups uh that you know the guy you know the, the guys and girls who are, who are who are running these uh you know they know what their favorite setup is it's important to be comfortable there are, you're still getting double wrapped bar tape or, or special thicker bar tape for these kinds of um for these kinds of events but but it, on the whole we're moving towards a one piece setup Absolutely. There is definitely, like as you say, the odd two-piece one here and there. Some people kind of working weird modified setups so they can fit two-piece cockpits on otherwise aero bikes. But sort of integration was the sort of theme of bikes in general these days. Simon, any further thoughts on that? And I know you're going to mention something about handlebar width. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. On the integration thing, yeah, absolutely. Like the only bike in today's World Tour Peloton, which kind of looks anything like uh, the the Domane of that era in terms of kind of front-end integration would be uh, the, the giant TCR. Did anyone ride a TCR? Uh, possibly. Possibly maybe one or two. But of course, you know, with electronic, modern semi-wireless electronic group sets, even those are, are more simple yeah, uh, or kind of more integrated because they have internal cable routing for the kind of hoses through the fork and things like that. Yeah, and, and so, yeah, Cancellara rode a, a separate, he rode an alloy bar with a kind of long 140 mil carbon stem. He rode 44 centimeter, center to center wide, uh, anatomic bend. Didn't know this was a gravel race. <laughs> yeah, didn't know this was a gravel race. I mean, wow. Yeah, that, that uh, anatomic bars, that is a blast from the past as well because those were ugly as sin then. And I'm... So mm-hmm. happy they've died. <laughs> um, but 44 centimetres wide, that's where your two and a half kilometre an hour came went from well, the frontal, frontal area. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, I mean, obviously it's interesting in a sense that, that was, this was that, that era where we've already talked about this frame set being super long, super low, but then, you know, a lot of people went and whacked a really wide handlebar on their bikes because they're like, one, well, I need that leverage. This is something I want you to briefly touch on, Simon. You actually didn't mention it as a heading in your piece, but sort of fit. Fit in general, I think, has come along yes. quite a way. You know, it's it's most apparent when you look at time trial positions now. Mm. Obviously, this isn't a time trial, but the way riders fit their bikes is has changed. Go into that. Yeah, <laughs> it really has. And, you know, aside from, you know, obviously we're used to seeing riders running like long and low front end positions. That's something, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, something we talk about all the time. Uh, but But actually, it's about, you know, in terms of bike fit, your riders are much more kind of forward and higher and rotate their hips are rotated much more over the front of the bike than they used to be. You know, with you know, 25 mil of setback was like pretty standard. You see that ago. actually on the bike, the article we covered on Sagan's bike, he's definitely pretty old school yeah. and his Saddle bike slammed, slammed right all the way so, back. So old school. So um, uncomfortable. Yeah. Sat in an armchair. Exactly. And, you know, riders with long cranks, for example, you know, I think Wiggins was riding, you know, he's a, you know, Wiggins was, Bradley Wiggins, sorry, was a tall guy, but he was riding, you know, 175 cranks on his road bike. Mm for his Tour de France win. And, you know, there How was... do you retain this information, Simon? <laughs> Why are you pushing out your brain to remember the legs cracked? I don't know. <laughs> he remembers, so I don't have to. It's yeah, great. I don't yeah. know. I'm just, you know, I'm sad. That's, that's, that's the problem. But, you know, but obviously he would have run, yeah, probably a setback seat post, yeah, really yeah. long cranks, and, and, you know, a really long stretched out position. And the, the hip angles that these generate have just been so tight at the top mm-hmm. of the pedal stroke. Whereas now, you know, you know, Van der Poel rides a kind of a shorter saddle from, I believe it is Seller Italia, and he would run basically an inline seat post, you know, and, and you, know, you know, Ash and I are kind of into bike fit and things like that. And, you know, but like Phil Burst explained it to me that essentially you want to be as high and directly over the bottom bracket as possible for maximum power. Because, you know, he was sort of saying, if you wanted to stamp on something, you'd want to go straight down, not you know, re- not mm. have to be reaching for it. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, that kind of big advancement has come a long way. And But yeah, like even the saddle, you know, Cancellara is riding a Bontrager team issue saddle. You know, other than a kind of, you know, 2013 graphics, that, that could have been <laughs> off Fausto Coppi's bike. Yeah, yeah. Like it's just that traditional kind of rounded shape with a really long, thin nose. And that was just what you got back then. It wasn't really much until kind of Specialized released its uh, power saddle a couple of years later, you know, taking influences from kind of, you know, triathlon seats like ISM, for example. Mm. There just wasn't much choice. Whereas, yeah, 
that that stuff like all about reducing soft tissue pressure, opening up the hip angle, you know, getting your kind of back into a lower, uh, getting your back into a kind of lower, flatter position for improved aerodynamics has has just yeah that that stuff has really come on. I should have written about that, to be honest. That would have been a good section. Don't worry, I've got another one for you to spring on you at the end with absolutely <laughs> no preparation. Um, speaking of optimization, we have a little look at, oh, and Simon, I really have to scold you for this, apparel, ugh, one of my least favorite words, <laughs> kit. Well, yeah, the, you know, the heading titles did come from our editor-in-chief. Oh, right, George, I so... hope he's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, listen, looking at kit, we've come on a long, long way there. That is probably the sort of final frontier of optimization that is um, still quite a lot of change going on um, and a lot of, would say, difference of opinion in quite how aero we go in, in, in kit. Yeah, I think so. So basically now nowadays, every racer is is wearing aero everything, you know, like, like skin suits, aero shorts, aero helmets, aero socks, you know, like all of this stuff. And, you know, Van der Poel was wearing a speed suit by his... Um, Callas, is it? Yeah, Callas. His, his team sponsor Callas. He had a Nabus Game Changer helmet on. He's wearing, yeah, aero socks by a kind of Dutch company called Aero Cycling Gear. But yeah, 10 years ago, Cancelara just wore a, a standard road helmet because, you know, aero road helmets back then were like the Giro Air Attack and they just didn't look cool. So no one wanted to wear them. Um, his, his jersey and bibs were just, you know, standard jersey and bibs. He wore... He wore, did wear overshoes, uh, but he is also wearing arm warmers in the pictures. So I, I'm, a, I'm kind of thinking it was probably just cold, and that wasn't really an aerodynamic aid. It, you know, maybe he kind of wore his time trial overshoes just because he, you know, he was the preeminent time trial rider of his generation. Um, but yeah, it just wasn't such a focus on it. Now, you know, ultimately, this, you know, these, all of these things are kind of little marginal gains. There were a few teams doing them back then, such as you know, Team Sky. But, Who coined the phrase? Well, I, I, I don't. I don't know. Maybe they did. I feel like marginal gains has been around forever. Do people call it different things? But you know, like, I, I, yeah, certainly that was the era where Team Sky were starting to do these things, like wearing skin suits for road races and warming up on the turbo. And and I have heard anecdotes of you know, like. Filippo Pozzato laughing at Team Sky riders, like, you know, why are you wearing a skin suit for a road race, you idiot? You know, but, and but like it, every, you know, but then they won all the races, and everyone went, "All oh, right, okay." <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts on sort of kit in general, Ash? Well, I'm looking at a picture um, over Simon's shoulder now of um, Cancellara wearing his his normal kit, and he's wearing exactly what I would wear on a Sunday club ride right now, hmm. um, and what most people would. Um, and I, th I think what we probably can note from all this is I'm never going to go and don a speed suit in order to go out for a coffee ride on a Sunday. Um, so what you, you know, for, for people who are kind of reading this and, you know, from their own points of view, you can you can probably say that, you know, pro riding's probably got very specialised and focused mm. on the racing side of things. And you're going to see less and less of that kit potentially making its way to you unless you happen to be a racer or going to a circuit or whatever it is that you're doing. But uh, yeah, uh, you know, 10 years ago, that's exactly, I'm still wearing the same kit as, as uh, Cancellara was then and I'm wearing that now. I think if I rode aero overshoes on a Sunday ride at any time of year, I would end up with trench fruit by the end. I need something more breathable for my sweaty tootsies. Simon, final point that actually wasn't on here, and this is way too broad a subject to cover here, but it's, I think, worth uh, mentioning. Sort of training and science. Mm. 
this is a sort of really overlooked area. We tend to focus on the the, the the tech we can see, but we all know that sports science has moved on a great deal there. Any sort of very broad thoughts on how things will have changed in the past 10 years? Yeah, you're completely right. And I think one of the things, you know, I think I think riders these days, they all look a lot healthier and stronger <laughs> in general. Like you know, they're all eating. Less emaciated. Yeah, they're all just eating a bit more. I think that's been one of the, the key kind of changes in the last five years is that, you know, the kind of like the knowledge around, you know, the fact that actually like starving yourself and being as light as possible funnily enough doesn't make for strong athletes mm -hmm. so yeah you know that's come in and i think that's been helped by the kind of adopt the mass adoption of things such as power meters where you know because they're you know they're, they're telling you how much how many kilojoules you're burning you can very precisely count your kind of energy output and therefore calculate the required energy input to stay on top of that now yeah interestingly you know power meters were around in 2013 as i'm sure many people remember cancellara opted to ride without one really yeah yeah he just but he did have his srm head unit on mm. for tracking presumably speed and time um, but yeah matthew van der poel rode shimano's latest you know dual-sided power meter crank set and you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure 95 percent of the peloton would have been riding power meters. And oh, surely a hundred. Really well, low. no, but set the Tour de France last year. We, you know, we spoke to a few teams who, were, well, you know, Alberto Bettio doesn't like a power meter, so doesn't use one. Rigoberto Aran doesn't like a power meter, so he just doesn't doesn't use one, which which seems bonkers, bonkers to me. But hey, you know, some people are traditional, I suppose. Um, but yeah, like just generally, kind of like. The increase in in knowledge about about sports science and, and training throughout the peloton, and the ability to to track that information and to know what works. You know, I think there are a lot of junior, you know, people, you know, young riders like Van der Poel who have grown up with power meters, for example, and have grown up with Strava mm -hmm. and seeing what other people have been doing. Because I think in the past, I imagine that how would you know what riders, what what pro riders did for training? You just wouldn't. Yeah. You'd have to wait to get to the team, and they would tell you. You got to ride your bike a lot, mate, and you would never have known that. <laughs> but nowadays, it's a you great know, secret. There's no, there's no easy way. <laughs> yeah, but nowadays, you know, you can go on Strava and look up the, what literally what the pros do. Now, of course, being able to look up what the pros do and being able to do it are two different things. But the kind of democratization of power meters, training knowledge, you know, like training software, you know, Strava will will track your fitness and tell you what to do. There are computer, you know, all of these things. So everyone is fitter and faster and yeah, happily, hopefully eating a bit more and healthier too. Ash, any thoughts from you on sports science? Uh only that it's yeah, I can't couldn't agree more. It has moved forward a lot. And actually it's 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 the not just the um the tools that the riders have is it's our understanding of the data that they're getting from that. Um, even in Cancellara's day with some riders riding power meters, then you've got those files, those files then feed the next evolution of, of interpretation. You get new files, next evolution, new files, it goes on and on and on. So our knowledge improves because we gain more experience. Um, it's not just the tools that we've got it's how we use that data. Um, and I think, you know, we're getting a lot better at that and pro pro riders especially are getting a lot better at that um you know having having a power meter isn't the be all and end all um what it is it really i don't <laughs> how I don't, do you know if you're having fun yeah exactly no power meter no fun um but you know it, it you know it's 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 worthless to you if you don't know how to use it um and i think even back in 2011 knowledge around how to utilize power meter data properly hadn't quite you know matured 
So, in summary, while both bikes still have two wheels, two pedals, and drop handlebars, it's fair to say that Paris-Roubaix tech and road bike tech in general has come a long way in the last 10 years. But to revisit a point Simon made in the start, though not every innovation is a step forward in the eyes of some, it is worth dwelling just briefly on that increase in average speed of nearly three kilometers an hour between 2013 and 2023. Now, there is obviously going to be external factors that could influence this, but we can pinpoint a lot of it down to the tech and how it's changed. Any thoughts on that, Simon? Yeah, I, I think it's like hard to deny, you know, whatever we think about rim brakes versus disc brakes, tubular versus tubeless, whatever. It's, it's hard to deny that these races are just getting faster and faster and you know, I, and I and I think tech is playing its role. Whether it's you know tubeless, it's because it's not any one thing. You know, as we've kind of already talked about, it's the fact that they're all riding aero bikes and tubeless tires, and they're all wearing skin suits, and everyone in the team is doing it. You know, like when Cancel Hour was riding, you know, maybe he was one of the most optimized riders in his team, for example, because mm. he was you know what at the top of his game at that point. But then you would have had other riders in his team who were perhaps not as into it. Whereas now. It's the aggregation of marginal gains for individual riders, but also for teams as well. And so, you know, that person who's the domestic who's on the front is faster than they were 10 years ago. And the guy in the breakaway is faster than they were 10 years ago. So, you know, there, there's just there's kind of, a you know, it's an arms race and, and it never ends, thank God, because it gives us plenty to write about. On that thought, we wrap up today's podcast. Do read Simon's feature. We'll link to it in the podcast description. It is on bikeradar.com. It's a really, really good read. Lots of good photos in it too. We enjoyed delving through the archives. And I didn't take any of those. No, but we like looking at the old photos. We do, but just I just don't want to take any credit. Lots of good photos in Simon's article, which I didn't take. Lots but. of good photos that Simon found in the archive. <laughs> yeah. You curated those I did, photos I, yeah, tremendously right. well. Thanks very much. Anyway, have a look through that article. It's well worth a read. And also, if you go to the bottom of the article, we do have a little link to our Paris-Roubaix tech as a whole and also in the intro. We've covered a lot this year. It's been really, really fun uh, covering it all sort of remotely and it's, it's well worth looking back. We do also have a video on our YouTube channel going over the kind of key tech trends from this year. Again, an excellent watch. If you enjoyed this podcast, do give us a five-star rating. If you have any feedback, questions or ideas for podcasts, particularly ideas, we always like to hear them, send them to podcast at bikeradar.com. In the meantime, thank you for listening and we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 